Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. You have one message. First message. Hey, Luke. It's Derek. Just wanted to call and let you know that Tailspin was a great show. Baloo and his boss, Rebecca, had a real Sam and Diane kind of thing going on. It was great. I kind of want to go back and check it out now. I I haven't thought about it in a long time. Also, does Double Impact sound like it would be a pornographic film? That's what came to mind for me. Talk to you later. Bye. Message erased. No remaining messages. From Mill U Media Group, this is 30 Pop. A weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Bronner. This is Season 3, Episode 32, Weird Names, World Records, and Award Shows. Today we're looking back at the two weeks that ended Saturday, September 7th, 1991. Welcome, friends, to another jam-packed double episode of 30 Pop, looking back at two weeks' worth of 30-year-old news. I was thinking earlier this week about how actually very little of what we discuss on this show would have been news at this point in 1991. Maybe the sports stuff or the actual headlines, celebrity deaths, or major blockbuster movies, but all the album releases, regular movie releases, etc., the stuff we spend most of our time discussing from week to week, that stuff is really only news in hindsight. Looking back, it's so easy to identify the feelings we have around particular events so that they're especially nostalgic or cringe-inducing. Looking back makes them so much larger than they were in real time. It's like we have a magic telescope that, rather than looking into space, allows us to look back in time and zoom in on our memories. So, I say let's do it. And we may as well get the cringiest part out of the way first. For each of the last two weeks in 1991, the top album in the country was trash metal band Metallica's 16-time platinum-selling self-titled Garbage Album, also known as the Black Album, also known as the album I most despise from all of 1991 and perhaps the entire decade. When I was a kid, I used to think it was so cool to stick CDs one at a time in the microwave and cook them. I'm not recommending it, but it is kind of cool. There's like this visible electrical current that brushes over the disc, ruining it forever, obviously, and cracking it into a million connected pieces. Why would I do that as a kid? Because I was curious. Why would I like to do that now to every copy of this particular album? To ruin them forever and crack them into a million connected pieces. No offense to those of you who love this album or this band, but I think you have terrible taste in music and maybe a bad person all around. You will, under no circumstances, be given access to the aux cord if we road trip together someday. You are not to be trusted. But, again, no offense. There were four other albums that released over the course of these two weeks in 1991, all of them superior in every way to the album at the top of the charts. 
I'll take them in reverse order, though, because, well, just because. On September 3rd, 1991, we saw a couple notable rap releases. First, the unfortunately very poor-selling sophomore album from Queen Latifah, Nature of a Sista. This album did achieve gold certification, but it also got her dropped from her label. Critics didn't hate it, but they didn't lose their minds over it either. As a general summary of the reviews I read, it was just missing something. For some, what was missing was the production team with whom she'd collaborated for much of her 1989 debut, All Hail the Queen. Ironically, one of the production teams she collaborated with on this album was also releasing their platinum-selling self-titled debut this week in 1991. Okay, actually it was their second album, but their first album, 1989's Independent Leaders, was released under a different group name altogether, The New Style. And it didn't really sell at all, so I don't really count that. This album, and the group's new name, Naughty by Nature. I'll wait till our next episode to dive deeper into that album, as its lead single is just about to dominate the hot rap charts. 30 years ago last week, on August 27, 1991, two truly spectacular rock albums hit the shelves, although one far outshadowed the other. First, the breakout third studio album from a band who jokingly borrowed their name from a Monty Python sketch and then just kind of stuck with it. Toad the Wet Sprockets, platinum-selling Fear. The album cracked the top 50 on the Billboard 200 chart, was certified platinum in September of 1994, and produced two top 20 singles, Walk on the Ocean and All I Want, each of which I enjoyed infinitely more before watching their respective music videos while prepping for this episode. There's nothing necessarily wrong with the music videos, they're just very, very early 90s, in the weirdest and worst ways. The collective shift in musical taste within every mainstream genre left the door wide open for some very awkward artistic expressions, and Toad the Wet Sprocket, no matter how gifted they were as songwriters, were not immune to the awkwardness. Bad haircuts, bad style, weird sort of spastic body language, it was musical puberty on full display. There was another album that released this week in 1991, though, by a band who seemed to know exactly who they were. No awkwardness whatsoever. Just track after track of pure alternative grunge rock gold. Truly one of the greatest debut albums in music history by one of rock music's most spectacular bands. 10 by Pearl Jam. It's hard to imagine a world in which Pearl Jam or this, their most successful and influential album, don't exist exactly as they are. But we almost experienced that world. When the band began making this record in early 1991, not long after forming, following the breakups of each of the members' respective previous bands, they did so under a different moniker, named inexplicably after a young NBA player they admired, Mookie Blaylock. They literally named the band Mookie Blaylock, and signed a record deal almost immediately after forming, using the name Mookie Blaylock. I don't care how good the songs on their debut album were. I don't believe there's any way this band would have made the indelible mark on music history they did using the name Mookie Blaylock. Thankfully, the label pushed for a name change while the record was being produced for fear of the inevitable lawsuits that would come with borrowing Blaylock's name. The band compromised by naming the album 10, an homage to Blaylock's jersey number. So weird. The album didn't really take off until about a year after it released, but once it started selling, it started really selling. 
It was certified 13 times platinum, and for good reason. It remains, in my humble opinion, one of the greatest albums released in my lifetime. I'm positive it and they will continue to be a regular part of the 30 Pop conversation for a long time to come. The top song in the country for each of the last two weeks was Once Again, but for the last time, Everything I Do, I Do It For You by Brian Adams. After seven straight weeks at number one, I suppose we were all finally beginning to move on. With a grand total of 22 weeks on the chart, by Thanksgiving 1991, this song had fallen completely off the Billboard Hot 100. New to the top of the Hot Country chart this week in 1991, replacing the George Strait classic, You Know Me Better Than That, was the title track from Brand New Man, the debut album from country duo Brooks and Dunn. I saw the light, I've been baptized by the fire in your church and the flame in your eyes. I'm born to again, I'm a brand new Okay, first let me say, this is a solid song. I'm sure it offended some folks for its secular application of sacred language, but whatever. It was well-written and well-performed. That being said, I know I spend a fair amount of time on this show making fun of the early 90s aesthetic, especially among country music acts who were trying so, so hard to look cool, I guess. But seriously, the music video for this song is so ridiculous. The clothes, the shades, the haircuts, the gyrating, the model spinning in circles in the sand and at the bar and everywhere she goes. I mean, you've just got to watch it. I've added a link in the show notes so you can check it out. The number one song on the hot rap chart this week in 1991, replacing Jabri Wise One's The House the Dog Built after back-to-back weeks at the top, was Growing Up in the Hood by West Coast Gangsta Rap Quintet CMW, or Compton's Most Wanted. This song was featured on the fairly recently released soundtrack to Boys in the Hood and on CMW's sophomore album, Straight Checkin' Em. While CMW had a strong local following, they never came close to the success of their friends and local mentors, NWA. Their biggest album would release the next year, followed by a long hiatus and then a string of commercial flops in the early 2000s. At the top of the hot R&B and hip-hop chart for each of the last two weeks was sibling duo B.B. and C.C. Winans' Addictive Love. This was the lead single from the Winans' fourth and most successful studio album to date, Different Lifestyles, which would go on to win a Grammy in 1992 for Best Contemporary Soul Gospel Album, and to be listed in the top 10 of CCM Magazine's 100 Greatest Albums in Christian Music. In other music news this week in 1991, on August 27th, NWA founding member and soon-to-be solo phenom Dr. Dre pled no contest to charges of viciously assaulting female rapper and hip-hop TV host Dee Barnes in a West Hollywood nightclub seven months earlier. 
This while his bodyguard reportedly held would-be interveners back at gunpoint. The lawsuit, which was filed for over $22 million, resulted in a $2,500 fine and two years probation for Dre, and 240 hours of community service. That's it. Meanwhile, Barnes was blacklisted by the rap industry almost entirely. As recently as March of 2019, Barnes was homeless, and Dre was steadily approaching billionaire status, which is just beyond messed up. The last little bit of notable music news from 30 years ago was the 8th annual MTV Video Music Awards, which took place on September 5th, 1991, and in which R.E.M. owned the night with six major wins out of an impressive 11 nominations. If this wasn't the most 1990s event ever, I don't know what was. Here are some of the celebrity appearances and presenters as per the show's Wikipedia page. Pee Wee Herman opened the show and welcomed the audience. Linda Hamilton from Terminator 2 and Steven Tyler from Aerosmith presented Best Group Video. MTV VJ Downtown Julie Brown appeared in pre-commercial vignettes about the Viewer's Choice Award and telling viewers what was coming up on the show. Christian Slater presented Best Video from a Film. Lenny Kravitz presented Breakthrough Video. The great Kurt Loder interviewed various celebrities backstage before commercial breaks. DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, who everyone associated with 30 Pop holds in the highest esteem, I assure you, presented Best Dance Video, which actually feels a little ironic considering their masterpiece single, Summertime, which was dominating radio at this point, self-describes as, quote, just a little something to break the monotony of all that hardcore dance that has gotten to be a little bit out of control. It's cool to dance, but what about a groove that soothes and moves romance? End quote. Somebody thought they were being clever. Dennis Hopper presented Best Direction in a video. Fred Savage of The Wonder Years appeared in a backstage vignette with Polly Shore. Polly Shore, who alongside supermodel Cindy Crawford, presented Best Long Form Video. Color Me Bad presented Best Choreography in a video. Billy Idol presented Best Alternative Video. NWA, or what was left of them, presented Best Rap Video. Mike Myers and Dana Carvey as Wayne and Garth from the SNL skit and soon-to-be cinematic treasure Wayne's World introduced the winners of the professional categories. Jason Priestley and Jennifer Connelly presented Best New Artist in a Video, Ed Lover and Dr. Dre, the one from Yo! MTV Raps, not the one who publicly assaulted a woman in a nightclub and then continued their three-decade-long reign of success, appeared in a pre-commercial vignette telling viewers what else was coming up on the show. Arsenio Hall, who also hosted the evening, presented the Video Vanguard Award before funk legend James Brown and MC Hammer presented him with a special award for his four-year hosting stint. Spinal Tap presented Best Metal Slash Hard Rock Video, which I think is amazing. Cher, who is a very fun follow on Twitter, by the way, presented Best Male Video and Best Female Video. And finally, George Michael, and once again, because we couldn't get enough of her at the time, Cindy Crawford presented Video of the Year. I love it. The whole list. I get nostalgic just reading it. Just about a week and a half earlier, on August 25th, 1991, we also saw the 43rd Annual Primetime Emmy Awards for which Cheers ruled the night with four wins and ten nominations. The thing that most jumps out to me, though, about that night, which may be perfectly normal, I have no idea, but to me seems super ironic, is that the 63rd Annual Academy Awards won two Emmys. Again, 
the Oscars won two Emmys. Amazing. In other television news, we saw a number of new series premieres and a couple series finales over the course of these two weeks. On August 30th, Nickelodeon's So Bad It's Good comedy, Hey Dude, ended after squeezing five seasons and 65 episodes into its short two-year stint. And the cartoon, Kid and Play, ended the next day after a single 13-episode season. It's unfortunate this show didn't find more success. Keeping in mind that rap music had only been nominated for a Grammy for the first time two years earlier, looking back, this show could have been a giant leap forward in the ongoing work of representation in mainstream media. An almost all-black cast in a cartoon that centered on hip-hop culture seems simultaneously late and surprisingly progressive for 1991. Kid and Play were actually part of the show, too appearing in live-action sequences alongside other old-school hip-hop royalty like salt and Peppa, Cool Modi, and Tony 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 in the non-animated bumpers for the show. The voice cast was pretty impressive as well, with both Martin Lawrence and Tommy Davidson from In Living Color playing major roles, as well as several other voice-acting legends, one of whom I actually interviewed earlier this year, which I'll be sharing very soon as a bonus episode of 30 Pop. New shows debuting over the course of these two weeks included the critically acclaimed but commercially unviable sitcom slash drama Rock, which also regularly featured hip-hop and R&B stars Heavy D, Tone Loke, In Vogue, and Jamie Foxx. The Nickelodeon game show What Would You Do, which I'd completely forgotten about, and the animated series Eon Flux, Darkwing Duck, Back to the Future, Little Shop, and Tasmania. The most successful of those being Darkwing Duck, which produced a total of 91 episodes over three seasons. In Hollywood, for each of the last two weeks, the number one film at the box office was, as I mentioned on the last episode, the overall very mediocre Kenneth Branagh-Emma Thompson thriller Dead Again, featuring both Andy Garcia and Robin Williams in minor supporting roles. Given the new releases, though, I can see how this was number one. The biggest title-hitting screens was the even more absurd third installment to an already absurd franchise, Child's Play 3. Left, 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 right, left. Welcome to Hell on Earth. You are without a doubt the most pathetic thing I have ever seen. Oh, oh. Strict discipline. Does this look like a gun to you, Barkley? It's a rifle! Next, rigid dress codes. Presto. Your balls. Get those weapons in the air. I want to see them high. And grueling drills. It couldn't possibly get any worse. Wrong again, wimp. Chucky's back. A few years have passed. No, you're dead. We killed you. I'm new and improved. At Kent, we take bedwetters and turn them into men. Andy, how you grown. And this time, I really gotta get out of this body. He's looking for a new recruit. I got some fresh meat lined up, and I'm not gonna let you spoil it. Now, just think, Chucky's gonna be broke. Child's Play 3. Look who's stalking. A haircut ain't regulation, soldier. Regulate this!
Almost miraculously, this movie was profitable, despite releasing only nine months after its predecessor and bringing in barely $20 million worldwide. That's because they only spent $13 million making it, a fact which is obvious even just by watching the trailer. But honestly, it didn't have a bad opening weekend, bringing in nearly $6 million upon its release. Nonetheless, I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever that this is a truly terrible movie. Its competition the following weekend, September 6th, 1991, wasn't much better. In fact, if box office returns were the standard by which we measured quality, then it's much, much, much worse. Gene Hackman and Mikhail Baryshnikov in the action comedy Company Business. We uh, random accessed their computer with a digital sequencer, and I uh, slipped their computer a virus. <laughs> what the hell? Sam and Peter, two guys on company business. This whole deal, you know, it's weird. Gotta admit that. So you don't know what you're doing either? No more than you, pal. For two very competitive companies. These people don't jump for us like they used to. You and me were servants. They were sent to close one last deal. Clean yourself up, you look like hell. What do you think? They look like a Ringo star. That turned into a hostile takeover. Why would I want to go anywhere with you? When their bosses worked out a merger... I got news for you. You're being traded. Sam and Peter needed a retirement plan. I want to go someplace warm. What are you complaining about? It's not exactly a golden parachute, but there is definitely a pension. Wow! Two million bucks. If they're around to collect it. Trust me. Trust you. This whole thing's getting out of hand. Do you know what you are? Dinosaurs. Dinosaurs. What happened down there? I like you better than I liked him. What two employers could treat two employees like this? This is a company problem. The CIA and the KGB. Oh, fudge. Gene Hackman, Mikhail Baryshnikov. Don't you think you're being a little theatrical? <laughs> Someone's got to take care of you. Company business. Das für According to IMDb.com, this movie was kind of a nightmare to make from the get-go. So much so that Hackman tried to back out two weeks before production began, and Barishnikov refused to even promote it. And I suppose moviegoers felt the same because they did not go watch it. All said and done, this movie only made $1.5 million against an estimated $18 million budget and about a third of that return came on its opening weekend alone. It's funny because it actually doesn't look that bad, certainly not compared to Child's Play 3. In sports 30 years ago, there were all kinds of impressive records being set. On August 25th, 30-year-old track and field star Carl Lewis set a world record that would stand unbroken for three years when he ran the 100 meter in 9.86 seconds. Almost the exact same amount of time it takes me at 41 to get up off the couch after I've been sitting too long. A few days later, on August 31st, Houston native seminary professor Dr. David Klingler, then a 22-year-old All-American quarterback for the University of Houston and contender for the Heisman Trophy, threw an impressive six touchdown passes in the second quarter alone and a dominant 73-3 win over Louisiana Tech. This, less than a year after throwing an NCAA record 11 touchdown passes in a single game in November of 1990. 
arguably one of the greatest college quarterbacks of all time. Klingler went on to be the sixth overall pick in the NFL draft, but is considered one of the biggest draft busts in NFL history. I'm sure he's a great Bible teacher, though. On September 7, 1991, 17-year-old Yugoslavian-born tennis player Monica Seles beat 34-year-old Czechoslovakian veteran Martina Navratilova to earn her first of two consecutive U.S. Open titles. We'll have some real Monica Seles craziness to discuss in just a couple years on 30 Pop. So, I guess, you know, stick around for a couple more years at least. The last little bit of news from this week in 1991 was the September 5th wedding of actors John Travolta and the late, lovely Kelly Preston. The two were married in France by a French Scientology minister, and then were married again a week later in Daytona Beach, Florida, as the first ceremony was deemed to be invalid for some reason. The two defied Hollywood norms and overcame tremendous hardship, remaining married all the way until Preston's tragic death in 2020, after a two-year battle with breast cancer. Sad stuff. And friends, that's everything for this week. As a reminder, I'll be back in two weeks for another double episode of 30 Pop, looking back at two more jam-packed weeks worth of pop culture greatness. And while I've intended for that to be the last of these consecutive double episodes, I think I've decided to do at least one more after that. We've got so, so, so much amazing stuff coming up, and I don't want to miss any of it. So we're just going to have some long episodes for a bit. I hope you don't mind. For now, though, friends, please remember, what's good for Toshiba is good for the world. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Braun. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 30 years ago that you want to share, leave a message on the answering machine at 30pop.com. 